Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I've got a very fun topic for the podcast today. It's a little off the beaten trail, which I think is going to be potentially very interesting for a lot of people tuning in because I think a lot of people that are entrepreneurs, we struggle with trying to figure out how do we scale our product or service to address the right people who need what we're doing and providing, whether it's a product or a service, and how do we make a bunch of money while doing it profitably so we can generate the cash flow, and how do we predict how people are going to be buying and what price they're going to be buying and at and which features and benefits, et cetera, that we need to include. And our guest today has been focused on this topic his entire life. Doug Horwath's life weaves through remarkable challenges and groundbreaking discoveries. His journey involves a deep fascination with why certain products succeed and more importantly, why there are so many failures out there and why these companies go bust. And his fascination leads into why people decide to buy something. And his he has a big fascination around complex systems. And his whole journey unearthed what he calls hypernomics, which is a field that focuses on uncharted dimensions in market analysis. So essentially saying, hey, there's a little bit more than just supply and demand on scaling a product and service. There's multiple dimensions. And Doug has figured out a way to actually map out these multiple dimensions. And he uses Elon Musk and then people scaling up like uh, big projects that are very expensive. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because Think about how much market research you need to do in order to fund a you know multi-million dollar or billion dollar project to make sure it works. Like what Elon has done, whatever you think about him, is fascinating because he understands the economics of business, but also these multiple dimensions that Doug is gonna be talking about. Fueled by this newfound clarity, Doug birthed hypernomics, crafting innovative software, analyzing markets in four or more dimensions. Industry giants like NASA, Virgin Galactic, Lockheed Martin, and more took notice. And he's got a book that just came out, Hypernomics, Using Hidden Dimensions to Solve Unseen Problems. And he promises to revolutionize how we think. And as you're going to see, I'm on a journey of trying to understand this as well. And the whole point of trying to understand this is I want to figure out where people are going to be buying in, in the future, what products and services that they want, because as entrepreneurs, we have to go meet that need so we can generate the business and the cash flow and meet the market demand in order to succeed over time. And Doug is going to be introducing hypernomics, which is a new way of thinking about market analysis and predicting market demand. Thanks everybody for tuning in. And I really hope you enjoy this interview with Doug. This episode is brought to you by Arcona's Fractional CFO Services. Arcona's Fractional CFOs integrate into your management team and assume the responsibility of the CFO. They become your strategic financial partner to help you run the business, create your value growth plan, and build the financial roadmap to the valuation you want to achieve. Doug, how are you? Ryan, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, coming on. I'm very excited to uh, jump into this topic. You are pioneering a different way of thinking about economics and value and demand and all these things that I think a lot of people have um, been resting on a certain set of standards over the years. And I'm very fascinated because I think the topic and how 
I think you can unpack this concept of how we are trying to figure, because it's all about making decisions about what, yes. where are people going? And that's what everybody's tuning into. Like, how do we make good decisions to get our company and like, to get our lives where we want it to go? But I, I like, I have some work to do to, to better understand it too, even though I'm very fascinated with all this stuff. So right. uh, why don't you just give everybody just a little bit of a background of you, your background, and then like the concept, and we can kind of unpack the concept in a way I think people okay. have a pretty good solid way of understanding it. Yeah. So the, the concept is called hypernomics and hyper means existing in more than three dimensions and nomics comes from the root anatomy meaning a field of study. So hypernomics is a field of study that deals in, in this case, economic phenomena that happen in four or more dimensions. And so while it sounds complicated and uh, frankly, I, even having discovered it, I didn't understand when I first saw it. So I got to confess that to your audience. Uh, it was a mystery to me for a couple <laughs> of months. I can't wait to you, I can't wait for you to tell, tell them the story about how you figured that out too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell them that. So I, um, I've i been trying to prove the law of supply and demand since I got out of school you know, decades ago and uh, never could do it. And Why, why were you so factu infatuated with it? Well, I had a degree in economics and it, the law of supply and demand didn't seem to work for anything outside of a commodity like iron ore or gold or, or oil. And so I kept playing around with it, playing around with it. So I had this kind of background mm -hmm. problem floating in my head for decades. And then one day, some seemingly mundane event happened. The, the mundane event was that my wife and I went off to our local Best Buy after we had traipsed a bunch of other stores and uh, looking for a washing machine of all things. So my wife said, you know, I like this machine right here. She says, it's got more capacity than we have at home. And I thought capacity versus price. Well, it's a two dimensional problem right there. I can handle that. And then she said, you know, I uh, only got one delicate cycle at home. And I really need to have two or three. And I like this machine. It's got multiple delicate cycles. And I thought, cycles versus price. She got cycles and she's got capacity. She's working a 3D problem. So I really like the machine we were looking at. And there was another one, you know, same brand, next model up, more capacity, more cycles, also more dollars. And I said to her, well, what about this one? She says, it's too expensive. We can't afford it. And in that instant, I realized that any purchase we were making was going to add to the total quantity that was going to be purchased of that model. And that, were, that was going to be a quantity versus price element. Mm -hmm. So she was looking at capacity, cycles, price, and we were part of the quantity thing. That was part of a four-dimensional problem that she was working on in her head. And so I raced home and, and had a vision of a four-dimensional system, which basically looks like a big T. You know, if you have one wall that intersects another wall where the wall tees in, if you can see on either side of that wall, that's what this four-dimensional system looks like. I want to unpack that more. Keep going. I want to unpack that more because I think you're... Yeah. So uh, it turns out that the way people value things can be expressed in a three-dimensional system and you can work it out more, more features if you need it. So for example, with electric cars, if you add range, people understand if you go from a car that's mm -hmm. got 100 miles range, you go with the one that's got 300, well, you're going to be paying more for the 300 mile range. And similarly, if you got a car that's got 200 horsepower and you're going up to one that's got 500 horsepower, you're going to pay more for that. And so what everybody understands intuitively is that you're paying more for range and you're paying more for horsepower. 
And so range, horsepower, and price, that, that's this three-dimensional system that you already know. Mm -hmm. You already know this in your head. And then you also know that, you know, Tesla makes these things called Model S's that were one of the first real popular cars out there. And you can get them with up to hundred with up to a thousand horsepower in them. But as you start to go to a thousand horsepower, the number sold starts to fall compared to say something like the lesser powered Tesla S and then the Tesla mm -hmm. three mm -hmm. and the Tesla Y and all the way down to something like the Nissan Leaf. And so you already know that as the price falls, people will buy more. Conversely, if the price rises, people buy mm -hmm. fewer. And so you already know all the stuff intuitively. And so the breakthrough, such as it was, was to figure out that these things all meet up at the same axis, the same price like axis. The intersection right? of that T, like of the wall, like you said. Yes, so like it's, it's an walls, intersection yeah. of the T and the wall. That's exactly where everything meets up. So on the right-hand side, if you were facing it, you've only got this plane, which is demand. And so you would have little points on this plane that would, you know, quantity would be the horizontal axis and price would be the vertical axis. And so you'd see points that would be further to the right as the quantity increases for the low price things that are low and, and far to the right. And then as the price increases, you'd have fewer and fewer. You'd be moving to the left towards the, the T intersection. Mm. And then if you're on the other side of the, the T intersection, if and you're if right you want to hold one of those up for the people that are yeah, watching yeah. on YouTube, fact, this you, is the model. You're, doing a, you're doing a good job. And I think we can unpack this because I want to make sure people understand. Because I, I think... People understand this stuff, Doug, in their head because they've been buying stuff like this forever. And I think people yeah, know that. that. That's the ahead. important point, Ryan. You've you've actually hit the nail on the proverbial head there. So in this red, what we usually call it right-hand plane, the reason we mm -hmm. coded it red is that demand it has a limit to it. And so this this white line through these white dots mm -hmm. for people that are seeing it here, we have a a, a white line that depicts the demand for the um in this like case, traditional like XY axis of the demand, you know. Yeah, yeah. So in this case, price. the horizontal axis going to the right is quantity, and the vertical axis going up is price. And so mm -hmm. as the price decreases, people buy more. So this this dot down here at the bottom, that's the mm -hmm. Nissan Leaf, and these guys up at the top, these are the the, the uh, first Tesla S's. Mm -hmm. And so that's their that's their demand over here on this side. Yep. Then on this side, on the green side, we have what's known as their value. So the two Teslas had more horsepower than anybody else mm -hmm. over here. And they had more range than anybody else over here. And so it this forms this 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 uh diagonal plane almost. A right? diagonal plane, yeah, that actually intersects all these points. And so points that are above this plane, again, these points represent the range horsepower and then price so it's a 3d point in space and if that sounds complicated you're every one of you who's got a 3d point in space right now that says where you are relative to latitude longitude and altitude so you honestly you the way i was thinking about Doug, it, like when i was when I, sorry to interrupt but let me know yeah. if, I, if i'm thinking about this right because like i'm in my office right now that's got four right. walls and mm -hmm. there's this three-dimensional space it's the space inside the walls and if mm -hmm. i look over in the, my bottom right hand corner that's one like you have the the walls are different variables, right? Yes. And then you you would be placing these dots inside the room, like almost yes. like hanging hanging planets. Yes, right? exactly. And then and then you're going more from like one bottom right hand corner to the top left hand corner. Yes, exactly. Different variables and the the intersection. Yeah, is where all those variables come together. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, uh, one of the things I've used as a mnemonic to help me out when I 
first came up with this and some people found this useful in some of my conferences is I'd look for a, a famous two-room house. And for those of your, your listeners that are into rock and roll, they, they probably think a famous two-room house. I know what he's going to go to. Well, yes, going to Tupelo, Mississippi for the house of Elvis where he was born. So Elvis was born in a little, uh, what they call a shotgun shack, which is a two-room house. It's rectangular and it's kind of split down the middle into basically two cubes. And if you can imagine uh, a rectangle, a rectangular house split into two cubes, mm -hmm. and one cube contains the value parameters, and another cube contains the demand parameters. Now you've got the basic idea of how this 4D system works. And then every point, every point on the demand side has a paired point on the value side all the time. So they're always paired. So for example, is that also like um, is when we cast a shadow onto the ground, right? So yes, we're three exactly. We're, th we're three dimensional, and right. then the the sun is casting the shadow. So you've oh, got that's the excellent. demand. I like that. And that is two dimensional, right? Which is the demand. So you're two dimensional, which is your shadow, and then the the value is the three dimensional person. That's oh, that's great. I'm going to have to cite you in a conference or two. I'm going to have to. Use that. <laughs> this is just me trying to understand this shit, man. I think. And the, well, and I think the, I'm still. The whole I'm, troll, I'm still trying to explain it to myself. So, <laughs> I really am. I mean, it's uh, there, there's a lot of ways to explain this, and I, you know, I've got a some words that explain this, but you know, it's it's the kind of thing that uh, you you want to keep refining the explanation so that you get to to the point where more and more people can grasp it. Well, and, and I think like, well, why does this right now? Well, because like, in, I don't know if I'm just too dense where it's like, I just want to make good decisions, right? So I'm trying to figure right. out how to make good decisions. I think a lot of people tuning in are the same way. So when I look at, for the people like look uh, thinking about this, you got the two dimensional, but then there's the three dimensional where you can see spatially like, huh, mm -hmm. I want to make more of that that's in that right. area, right? And then you're just choosing because like when you think about it, like the business owners think listening and are going, okay. Well, what features and benefits do I have in my product or service? Right. And, you know what I mean? And like, there's the whole, what's the whole, uh, Doug, I can't remember, but it's like low cost. I don't know. There's the three things you can't have all three. I can't remember what it was. Uh, Jim Collins talks about it, but um, right, right. Like low cost, high value, and um, it's value cost. I don't know. This is probably tied into what you're saying. But anyways, like mm -hmm. people are making decisions that where to deploy their time, capital, and energy. Those are the three things that we have limitations of. And so they're trying to figure out where to invest in their business through acquiring companies or, you know, to, you know, building out products oh, right. or services companies. And if you're just looking at the two dimensional, you're just missing an entire dimension. No pun intended. Yes. We're entire two dimensions. In fact, so the other thing yeah, that's great I, yeah. about this, right, is it forms a series of maps. And so on this, the, on this demand side here, this, this line, this white line shows you what we call the demand frontier. And there's yeah, different yep. kinds of the form. And so this is what's known as an upper demand frontier, which means that the market was price limited to how much it could buy. Now, if you were to plot the stocks, the S&P 500 every day, mm -hmm. you would find that they have an upper boundary. And you'd also find that they have a, an outer boundary. And you'd find that they have a lower boundary and an inner boundary. And with that, what that, the, the Which would that with those boundaries, sorry, sorry, would those boundaries be the room that we're talking about? Yes, exactly right. Yeah. Well, they'd be the, they'd be the marks on the wall in the room where the where the okay. limits are. Got it. Yep. And so the 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 limits need to be drawn and understood and see how they move over time. So, for example, if you look at this this red side again, you see that there's nobody playing in this point, particular point in time between 
60 and 80 K. And, and of yeah, but, course, so what I'm at for the listeners, what I'm looking at is you've got the, the top of the quantity or that you have a high price. So that'd be like the Tesla, right. right? The high. And then there you go at the bottom What you said, what is the Leafs or the, the lower yeah, price? The Nissan Leafs. So back in 2013, when this model was built, you had a couple of real high end Teslas and then you had Nissan Leaf and a bunch of other cars that were mm -hmm. 30 to $60,000, but there was nothing between 60 and $80,000. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine, like, if you go into your local Best Buy and, and this takes some zeros away, imagine there's a whole bunch of $300 TVs mm -hmm. and there's a whole bunch of $600 TVs, and, but your budget might be $500. And you'd say, well, where are the $500 TVs? And th then the, the proprietor might say to you, well, we don't have any $500 TVs, just like mm -hmm. this, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you were in the business of making TVs, you'd say to yourself, well, I bet you there's a market for $500 TVs because there's a market for the stuff on the top and stuff on the bottom. And so in, by interpolation, you can find out that there's a price, what we call a price gap over here on the demand yeah, side. Yeah, Nobody's yeah. playing in that zone. Now, if you go over here onto the, the value side, you see yeah. that big that big big plane here. Yeah. You see how there's a lot of people with low low horsepower and low range mm -hmm. back in the day. And there's just a couple of points, basically the Tesla points that are out mm -hmm. there that have range and horsepower. But you see how there's nobody playing in between? Yep. Well, yep. Tesla solved that too. They put a bunch of, put a bunch of models in there. They, they, yep. you know, they, they came up with the Y and the three and they put various combinations of horsepower into this gap. And they, they basically did intuitively, which somebody like me had to do math, you know, by geometry, try to figure out where should I place my next product? Yeah. Well, and that's what I think is very fascinating, Doug, is like I have just this absolute faith in the scrappy entrepreneurs that have started their companies, but they're intuitively mm -hmm. figuring this out by listening to their customers and having conversations and coming right. back and saying, well, we didn't sell any of this. We tried this marketing camp. I just, I, I think there's a lot of sound intuition and then you, you go back to like the two or three dimension people are like, well, I know they're missing some variables in, in that. Yeah, yeah, and and so well, the the caution would be within intuition. Like for example, I mean, I think you know, Musk has got you know intuition in droves. But you know, very famously, as far as we're concerned, we, there was a there's a like demand frontier that's formed for business jets, and that that fr frontier is actually moving moving outward. So it's, there's more and more jets being sold, you know, year over year. And so in 2014, I, I plotted where they, the last 10 years, the frontier was at $120 million. And there was there were 47 vehicles that could have been sold at $120, $120 million. And then five years later, it was growing. You could have sold maybe 63 units at that price. Now, while this stuff is going on in the, the broad market, a Texas billionaire named Robert Bass, one of the Bass brothers out of Fort Worth, well, he decides he's going to build himself a supersonic business jet. And so you're talking about what Collins was talking about, what you need to have correct. So you need, in our vernacular, you need to have cost, value, and demand all figured out correctly. And so the Bass team came up with a cost estimate to develop this aircraft. And it uh, had the right number of zeros. They guessed it was going to take them $4 billion. And that was about what we would have predicted. It was pretty close. So we said, mm -hmm. hey, cost, you got a thumbs up here. And then he, we did some analysis about what the thing was worth. Well, it turns out at the real high end of the, of the business market, people are paying a whole big premium to go from Mach 0.9 to Mach 0.91 to not Mach 0.92. There's a big difference between going Mach 0.92 to 9.25. And so people have paid 
a big premium. That, that actually, that, that little 0.05, that's three miles per hour faster. But these guys want to have bragging rights, and so they they're actually willing to pay more for that. <laughs> but crucially, crucially, only so many people can right. pay for that. So if if you go out and you poll your customers and you say, "We're going to build this business jet," and you ask people how many you know, if we build it, will you come? And so people did that back in the days of the Concorde. They say, "If we build this, will you buy it?" So for those of you who may not remember, the Concorde was a supersonic business airliner that the French consortium along with the Brits decided to build back in the 60s and it went Mach 2 across the Atlantic and the preliminary calculations for the number of sales were between 250 and 350. Well, they sold 20. Oh, no. Right. They sold 20. Now, some people say, well, the thing made money. Well, it made money for the operators after the operators had it, but the people that invested in building it, they lost the right. They lost, you know, they lost about just about everything because they didn't recoup their prices. So what enter, excuse me, enter Robert Bass into this supersonic business aircraft market. So he comes in, he says, well, we're going to build, we're going to make this plane. We're going to sell for 120 million bucks. Well, our analysis said it was worth 160. So you got that right. So it's even priced below that. So 120 okay. sustainable. So we're going to spend $4 billion to make it. So that's sustainable too. And then he said, crucially, he said, well, we're going to sell 300 of these guys in a decade and 500 overall. Now, recall, I told you what I said was when you're starting out, the, the limit was 47. Mm -hmm. Five years later, it was 63. So now what happens in, in commercial aircraft markets, like those for the Boeing, the Boeing products and the Airbus products, like the 737s and all those things, when they launch a new model, like there's a 777 big dash nine now they they usually launch it with several hundred orders and so boeing or, or airbus depending on who's got the new product they're basically guaranteed hitting the break-even point if they can make the plane fly right right so bass takes off instead of having several hundred orders recall that he wanted to have 300 to 500 he takes off with 20 orders in 2014 and so time marches on and i'm, I'm tracking this the whole while and it comes 2019 Still got just the 20 orders. So I write a piece on LinkedIn, you know, in December 2020, said, worth every penny, not enough pennies. And in this little LinkedIn post, I said, hey, you know, the, analy the analytics say that this plane's worth the 120 or more, even more than that. Your cost is fine, but there aren't enough dollars in the world for you to make your, your, your sales target. And so mm -hmm. I get this angry reply from a guy a few days after this. Turned out after I said that, they, they, Claimed they had an order. What it was in the um, aerospace world is what they call an option order. Basically, it said that if you build it and it's you know it's going to fly, we'll we'll take we'll take the we'll exercise our option and buy it. But it's not a firm order to buy. So they came in with a bunch of option orders. Said, well, we've got we came came in with this big option order and we're going to make it. And so they went from twenty potential orders to I think it was maybe if you put all the dollars into this, it might have been ninety three. But there was some training involved and some offsets. So 93 mm -hmm. was kind of pushing it. But recall, again, they wanted to have 300. So I said, well, that's great. I'm happy you did that. You're still not going to make your number. So fast forward six months, the whole company went bankrupt. Oh. And they blamed oh, and COVID on it. And interestingly, what happened during COVID, for those of you that follow business aviation, well, business aviation rose because people didn't want to fly 
the people that mm-hmm. could afford to didn't want to fly commercial anymore because it was hard to fly commercial. Yeah. So they, they went T- into tough, business. Tough uh, pill to swallow when it actually increased your demand. <laughs> yeah. Right? Precisely. So the thing was that they, they hadn't paid attention to that frontier. Now, the same kind of thing can happen when it gets to the, the value analysis. You can, be, you can value something too highly or value something too low. So in aerospace, again, I'll, I'll switch over to automotive here in a second, but in aerospace, in the early 2000s, there was this guy from this company called Microsoft. He was the number seven employee at Microsoft, a guy named Vern Rayburn. Vern Rayburn came down to Albuquerque, New Mexico, he said, I'm going to build a small business jet, and I'm going to make them like computers. Just say, I'm going to just stamp them out. So he came up with this design, which he had to do twice because he didn't power it up enough the first time. And even though his engineers told him that he was too close to the edge, he built a, a jet that didn't take off in the required field thing. So he had to basically redo the whole thing. He says, I'm going to make this five-place or six-place jet. It's going to go 410 miles an hour. It's going to have a range of 1,300 miles. And I'm going to charge people $775,000 for this. Now, you got to go out and study to see, well, what do you think they ought to be worth based on what the other features, what the other jets are, are fetching? When you do that, which I did, when you do that, it turns out the thing was worth closer to $2.5 million. Basically, there was about a 5% chance that the, his price was right or it or could have been lower. Basically, a 95% chance that he'd missed it. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine if you would so now so imagine that the real price, I guess, well, let's just call it two million, I think. Two million dollars. Imagine if you took your two million dollar house, if you had one, and you put it on the market for seven hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars. Well, you'd have all these orders coming. I was all gonna these say you like, to use the analogy, you're you have you're have guaranteed a nosedive right into the ground. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and, and and what you wouldn't do is probably sell it at that price, but you know, imagine all these orders came yep, in. Yep. You know, so in, in aerospace, I mean, there's no just one of these things. There's as many as you want care to produce. So he gets all these orders, and he gets 2,600 orders. Now, to put that in context, the the the, the biggest selling business jet over the course of a decade only sells about 500 to 600, and he gets five oh times this, right? Well, he starts to make it, and build a jet and it costs more than than he can sell it than he sell it for not what he could sell it for what he was selling it for and they gradually tried to derise, raise the price but by that time he'd already sunk himself so is elon and, musk doing this kind of analysis you think you, you think he's doing it intuitively because of how he's launching these product these products in a, such a unique fashion like you're talking about i i think he's just got uncommon tuition i mean he kind of silently well for him, he kind of silently set up this thing called Starlink several years ago, where he's shooting up 80 or 90 satellites at a time. And now if you look at the Starlink map, he's covering the world with these things. He's got guys that mm-hmm. are going, you know, with the Earth, Earth's orbit. He's got other ones that are going in polar orbits. I had a friend of mine that's got a, he's got a, a, a fly-in fishing lodge in Manitoba. He's right on the edge of where all of all of oh, us well, things trippy coalesce, and, and he, can, he can get internet now in an area in the world that didn't have internet before. So Musk just has this knack for figuring out what the open space in the market is. Well, I just think about like the cyber trucks or like the like all these different products that he's launching. That like because like why I think this all of this topic is so fascinating, Doug, is because like 
one of my passions is just understanding why people make certain decisions and why they work or don't work. And I just watch over the years, like, I mean, I think a lot of the dumb money exacerbated, like the dumb money, you know, multiplied by vanity metrics just kind of got everything disoriented. And it's like at some, because at some point, I think the name of the game is the like cash flow and right, equity exactly. growth. Like that's the entire point is that we all care about cash flow and equity growth, but there's been this noise that's masked the underlying fundamentals of what you're talking about. Like you, you can't ignore the examples that you talking about selling a, a jet for seven seventy five when it costs two minutes. Yeah, <laughs> like right. it, it just it's doesn't crazy. work, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Now I was I told you I had promised you an automotive example. So um, for your younger viewers in the audience uh, and listeners, there's this film called Back to the Future. Maybe you heard of it. Uh, oh, in I which it. <laughs> I love Back to the Future. In which the lead character uh, has a friend, an older friend named Doc Brown, and Doc Brown decides to take a car called a, car called a DeLorean and turn it into a time machine. And uh, when Marty confronts Doc about, you know, said, you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? Yes, all astonished. And to which Doc Brown says, well, the way I figure it, you're going to build a time machine. Why don't you do it with some style? Well, that's actually a telling story right there because John DeLorean banked on the fact that this thing had a lot of style. So for those of you who don't recall what this was, it was a stainless steel sport car that had gull wings. So its primary features were these gull wings for the doors and stainless steel. And he priced this at about $25,000 roughly in an age in which the $25,000 cars had 100 more horsepower than he was offering. He was offering about 138, about the equivalent of a 2006 Civic, which I have out in the garage here. You know, I got one of those cars. You take a 2006 Civic and you, you, you match it up to a DeLorean, they got about the same horsepower, right? So he expected that, you know, people to buy, buy the, uh, the DeLorean based on the style, and some people did. But he messed up the the value of this thing. So instead of being worth twenty five thousand dollars, it was worth more like fifteen thousand dollars. And so instead of hitting the target at twenty five thousand dollars for demand, he was past that frontier, just like Arion was. And so he didn't sell the the required number of units, and he it was overpriced. I mean, a few people could afford it, and they did, and he went bankrupt. So this is this is real world analytics. So I I basically reconstructed what the car market looked like as he was entering it to be able to figure out that those parameters. And it turns out that he was, he exceeded the demand parameter. He exceeded the value parameter. In fact, he messed up on cost too. So he messed up basically any way you could make a, an error economically he did. And uh, that sunk him. Pardon the brief interruption. I really hope you're enjoying the conversation with Doug. It's probably a little bit of mind bending. It's a different type of topic and a different type of thinking that most of us are used to. But I think he's really onto something because I think we all understand that our customers buy for a lot of different reasons. And at the end of the day, in order to scale our company and make enough cash flow for us, we need to be able to anticipate why they're buying and then how to scale our company. And we can't always predict the future. And I think a lot of the stuff that Doug's talking about is fascinating, but it's very difficult for us to access how to actually implement some of the things he's talking about. But 
I do know that if we have a roadmap from where we're at right now, our point A to point B with our financials, we have a lens to make decisions so we can start to place bets that are calculated to say we have an X amount of excess cash that we can place a bet into a market or service or product or person that can hopefully get us to where we wanna go faster if we have that financial lens and a dashboard in order to see that visibility to enhance our decision making. So there's two things that you can do if you're interested in having that kind of visibility. One is use the link in the show notes below to have a discovery call with me to talk about our coaching that is backed by the academy to level up your education if you wanna learn more about how that kind of visibility works and how valuations and how the financial strategies work to make better bets. Or two, you can schedule a discovery call with myself to tee yourself up to have a complimentary financial assessment with my team at Arcona where we're gonna plug in our dashboard, analyze your numbers and come back on a call to walk you through how your numbers look in a different way. Kind of like, let's start with three-dimensional, which I can see into the future three-dimensionally with my financials because all three statements are organized together and connected to your target valuation. And I think that that helps change your mindset and help you view and run the company as a financial asset. So if you're interested in scheduling a call, use the show notes and the link below. Thanks everybody. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the interview with Doug. Doug, with um, I think about like the the business owners that, that we work with, because there's kind of two two big buckets that I think about in business. It's the the people that are going for the moonshots that are going public that are, I mean, mm-hmm. the definition of unicorns, it's rare. And I think we're right. going to see a lot more of, hey, that is actually rare that someone figures this out, like what Elon does, and it takes a shitload of time and right. money to get oh, there yeah. over time. But like, the, I think that people are thinking like this as owners and consumers naturally. But like then we're using kind of antiquated resources or tools to make the decisions on this. And I think about like product or like think about services. Like I think about like one of the big challenges with professional services companies or even Mm -hmm. manufacturers, like what features and benefits do we put into our product offering? Right. And they should be able to map out like, what is it that people are caring about? And does, is this going to work or not versus like, the sheer trial and error. Cause I think about like the, the Pareto principle, how many privately held companies get over 5 million in revenue? Like 94% of all privately held companies, it's 5.6 million are below right. 5 million in revenue. And I think that like there's this, well, there's a lot of factors that go into that. They tap mm-hmm. out from the cash flow, the ability to reinvest, but they don't know how to place their bets right. to get the company over, which is the cash flow is the oxygen to get over that perspective or that over that hump. Sure. And and it's it's about how to figure out the product pricing fit and what features and benefits to include with the constraints you have. I mean, that's the biggest challenge people have. Yeah. I have a, 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 a book on my shelf. I think it was written by, oh, it's by Christensen entitled back to Wait, your point, the innovator's yep. dilemma. Yeah. Yep, and yep. Uh, the, uh, the, the, what I would argue is there's no dilemma at all. Um, the market will tell you, what it what it want this is our key phrase the market will tell you what it wants doesn't have and can afford there are spaces in the market that are bounded by other other products so if you interpolate in between that there are products that there's a space in the market for a new product that is not identical to another product that's got a certain number of features that are guaranteed to fit based on somebody buying more of the a given feature and less of it for this feature and more and less of it in this other feature. In fact, you can take 
you know, it can be up to six or seven features that you could identify. At a certain point, though, the, the statistics start to merge down and there's, there's nothing else you can add, but you can take various cuts at it. So you could take a bunch of different cuts and, and show how the, the market should behave based on what is, how it's behaved to date. And so the other thing we like to say is we like to take a, a look at the, it, when we're looking at markets, we like to look at the distant past, the near past, and the present to predict the near future. So again, the, the distant past, mm -hmm. the near past, and the present to predict the near future. So the, the way I, I like to look at it is- um, I love that. Yeah, say you have kids, Ryan, do you have a kid? Yep. Twin, twin girls that are seven. Oh, great. Oh, cool. Well, that's like soccer kid, soccer ball kid age, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. They're all chasing well, the imagine same ball. If you're, yeah, yeah. Imagine if one of the girls is kicking a ball to the other girl. And so she kicks it. And a second out, it's you say that's the distant past. And so you, you know where it is a second out. And then say you go another two seconds and you say, well, that's the near past because it's going to come to me pretty soon. And that two and a half seconds is going past you. It's going right there. That's the present. And so you can say based on the, the distant past two seconds ago mm -hmm. and a second ago. And now, right now, I predict in a half a second, it's going to be over here. Mm -hmm. And so basically this, this sphere that's moving from the distant past to the near past mm -hmm. to the present to the future, there's actually a, an area in a market where the, the value is greater than the cost and there's sufficient demand and you've got enough, enough, air, you know, enough room to make it so that if you can imagine the, the top side of the ball, if you will, being the value of something and the bottom side of the ball being the cost of something. There is an area in between in which you can make a profit. And so this thing is moving over time. Now, these things shift. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In economics, they shift. Just like a ball, if you instantly hit it, it would be squished. Mm -hmm. And then it might have a rebound effect. The market's going to have a certain shape to it. But it's going to take in the distant past to the near past to the present. You move forward. We, the, we call this area that, that's open here that we call this the financial opportunity space. Sorry, it was a little long-winded, but he had to name it nope, something. Nope. No, no. But yeah. the, the, the movement over time is, is pretty simple. So we call that economic trajectory analysis, economic trajectory analysis, or ETA. So the, 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 the space that was here, that was there, that is here right now, and as you observe it going by, you should be over here in the not-too-distant future. It's, you know what I think about, too? Like, and, and, I, and I think about um, going back to, I because I think in spatial. Like, that's oh, where, good. like, that, that's and, gonna and help I think you about, this, like, yes. Well, that's why like, I think about this room. If the room is like, and you have all these balls in the room mm -hmm. based on where it is in that, like the plot, like you're talking about, you're trying right. to go to the space that's open. And then mm -hmm. like the market will, will fill up the room eventually, right? Like you, you want the whole yes. room, right? The room will, the, the room, as long as the market's healthy, it will fill the room with different companies that meet it. And going back to then your ball example, and this is, I don't know right. if this is totally crazy, but like how I think Doug is like, the cash flow is the oxygen yes. that has to take the the ball from the past, the distant past, to the uh, re recent past, to the present, to the future, to the near future. And the moment you run out of freaking cash flow, it's done. The game's over. Right. And so, like when I think <laughs> about it, is like you have to. That's a needle that has to be threaded. And, yes. And like you can't. 
what I'm, what I have been fascinated with is you can't ignore that. It's a law of nature. Like the income statement, right. the balance sheet and the cash flow statement is what it is. And you can't avoid that. And so you have to explain, you have to extrapolate what you just said and then manage that cash flow. Or you're like, and what I've seen over the last four years or so is like the abundance of private or the abundance of private equity, venture capital and free money has mm -hmm. ignored the fundamentals of that shit. Oh yeah. Right. And, mm -hmm. and it's just so like, then therefore there's like, then you can't extrapolate the reality until. Oh, no, no, no. Mm -mm. Yeah. That's, that's exactly true. Now the, what's, what's interesting here, this, this, the, the other point that maybe I didn't emphasize enough here, Ryan, is that the reason this stuff all works is that people self aggregate their behaviors. Mm -hmm. That, that boundary that I showed you there, I didn't draw that boundary. In the case of electric cars, the, the several thousands of people that were buying electric cars self-aggregated that boundary. And as more people came into the market, that boundary would change. If you pull up the stock market, if you just pull up the S&P 500, you know, after we're done here, you know, pull up the S&P 500 and plot prices, or I should say stock volume on the horizontal axis, and then plot stock prices on the vertical axis. And what you will see is that there is what we call a huddle mm -hmm. forming. Across the top of the huddle, you're going to see, you could actually draw a line across the top of the huddle. And you're going to see companies like Facebook and Microsoft. Amazon is actually beyond that. There, there's one, there's an outlier, but there's going to be several companies that form the top of this, this huddle. There's some companies that form the outer boundary. And then there's an under, you know, there's a lower boundary and an inner boundary. What's happened here is the, the market is self-aggregated relative to its limit. So that looks a lot like like this. Mm -hmm. It's this the room. Drawing, it's the room. Well, You're stuck in the drawing. room. Like it, yeah. Yeah, this is the Dow 30 Industrials on June 20th, 2019. So what I have here on the demand side is I've got some stocks that form this, this black demand frontier. So back then, it, it included Boeing, Microsoft, Apple, and Pfizer. And you see there's an upper boundary that's formed here. Mm -hmm. And then over. It, it, what's fascinating is so like while you're, while you're thinking about that is like, yeah, where I, when I started getting um, fascinated by money, it was after we sold our business. And then I like, I literally didn't even understand compound interest 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And then I, I started learning about all this stuff. And then I was like, you know, the trickle down demand side or supply side economics. And I'm like, wait a second. So like, at the end of the day, people have to wake up, earn enough money to buy enough shit to keep us all in business. Yes, right? Exactly. Isn't that isn't that the the, the demand frontier? Yeah. Is like if they don't yes. have any money, like none of it works. And like right. all you and I are doing with money is exchanging trust. So like, which is according to the income statement of balance sheet, we're just we're just having these IOUs back and forth. And so like. One of us has to have money to trade something with each other. So the demand frontier is just like, like to you say that to your point of like this, the aggregation, because you can't have it like you need more, the more people, the bigger the room gets, right? Exactly, because they yes. have more money. Yep. And so like, you know, I just don't know how we can avoid these laws of nature, which I think a lot of economies and central governments have tried to ignore. And so I'm yes. sitting here going like, I don't know how you, I don't know how you get around this. <laughs> Well, that, that's kind of the whole point, Ryan. I mean, really grabbing what's going on here, frankly, much faster than I did when I came up with this idea. <laughs> a little embarrassed, but um, the central point about- I've been thinking like about that, this like nonstop for like a decade, Doug, for whatever it's worth. <laughs> well, the point about that is that, that 
you know that, that there's the, the, these behaviors are mappable and predictable and you can you can map and find exactly what's going on at any point in time so you, you don't have to guess so uh clayton christensen the uh professor at harvard once stated that uh he believes i think through some data that 95 percent of all new product ideas fail so what our big hope is here i mean globally you know mm -hmm. as i mm -hmm. put out the put out the book and and you know form our company but globally what i hope happens is that people start to adopt this for themselves and so what would happen if the failure rate went from 95 percent to 94 percent well that's not too big is it well you flip that around you say well that what he's also saying is that five percent of new products succeed well what if we went from five percent to six percent well one percent of five percent is twenty percent that's a twenty percent improvement Mm -hmm. And so what our hope sure is, is that yeah. our hope is that people will start to adopt this and start to have more frequent successes in markets so that the, the money that's lost in endeavors like the DeLorean, the Eclipse 500, the Arion jet, that stuff doesn't happen as frequently. That, that's kind of our big hope is that, that that doesn't happen nearly as often as it might. Well, well, right on, because also, like, the ramifications of that is just not like, oh, you know, we don't have more jets, which, I, right. I mean, I get the analogy, but like, or not the analogy, but the, the, the use case, but it's also like, it's, it, yes, we can have great, better products and services, we can actually more effectively use the asset class of venture capital. Like mm -hmm. it has just been, I don't know, I just have like an issue with like, like, I'm sorry, I don't know how you can scale some of the stuff that people have been trying to scale. It's like, it's just, it doesn't make any sense to me. And they're getting the money from pension funds for teachers that need the 2,500 bucks a month. Oh, right? Yeah, so yeah. Like, right. And so yeah, it's like, it's, it's the, the, the ripple effect of the inefficiency of this crap is actually a big deal. When you have pension funds and all this money that's been thrown at ideas that are probably mappable to be failed right off the bat. <laughs> if you, oh, yeah. you, yeah. you thought exactly. about the, the, this way. Now, very interestingly, too, it's, you know, I mean, some of you people might, listeners might say, well, what about governments? Well, uh, governments must be different. And it turns out that's exactly incorrect. Governments have demand limits, too. And governments have response services. So, for example, uh, there's a principle that uh, I, an economist back in the Ronald Reagan area, era, uh, is still alive, a guy named Arthur Laffer came up with what's known as the Laffer Curve. And the Laffer curve basically says that if you tax people at 0%, you get zero revenue. If you tax people 100%, you get zero revenue. And somewhere in between, there's a peak. Well, in, the, in 2014, the state of Colorado and the state of Washington both decided to legalize mar recreational marijuana. And they, you know, they're going to, you know, they want to get taxes on it. They make it legal so they don't have to bust people for it. And then the other addition, the other benefit would be that you're going to get taxes on it. So at the end of the year, Colorado, with fewer people than Washington State, Colorado had $375 million in recreational tax, in recreational marijuana tax revenue. And Washington had 50. Whoa, I never knew that. So they had, they had seven times the revenue, even though they were a smaller state. Now, why did that happen? Well, Colorado was taxing at about 28 or 30%. And Washington State, I'm not making this up, was taxing at 108%. <laughs> and 
Now, who told them that was a good idea? You know, I didn't. Um, they eventually dropped it, and, and their the revenues, surprise, surprise, shot up. I mean, and of course, the government being mm -hmm. the government, nobody that nobody they named ever got fired for that. But the point is, you could have figured this out prior to that by figuring out what the tax rate is, what happens when you start to hit to adjust taxes to a rate that's so high people can't stand it. So here in I'm just outside of the the, uh, the city of Los Angeles, California, and Los Angeles decided to enact what they call a a mansion tax. And so, if you're if you had a house that's worth five million dollars now, after the certain cutoff, I forgot when it is. I think it's February next year. But if you had a house that's worth five million dollars or more, not only do you get to pay the the regular property tax as you leave, you get to pay this additional penalty tax. Now, what do you suppose happens in a situation like that? Well, you get people like Mark Wahlberg, an LA resident, he's got a nice piece of property. He's got his own little three-hole golf course on the property. People love Mark Wahlberg. Mark Wahlberg loved LA, but he didn't love it enough to stay here when you're gonna tax him through the nose. So he, you know, he lit out, just like a whole bunch of people lit out. Now, the, the state, to its detriment, could have done this, this demand analysis. Mm -hmm. they, they could have done this frontier analysis for tax revenues. And what they would find is that if the, the, the demand curve has a certain shape to it, you will actually get fewer dollars if you raise the rates than if you were to drop the rate. And so some people yeah, might have the same from that two-dimensional view to saying, like, where in the space, like, you can start to see, I mean, like, you see what the, the ramifications yes. would be. Exactly. Doug, exactly. How, so, how did, how did you get so passionate about this? Like, so, I mean, like, I, like, cause this is a topic where when you're going after like conventional thinking, like what's been the response and why, why have you st stuck with this for so long? Well, um, you know, my, my first initial foray into this besides trying to prove the law of supply and demand was I said, well, why do projects keep failing? You know, and, and, and besides trying to buy the right washer for your wife. <laughs> yeah. Besides trying to buy the right washer, why do things fail? You know? Uh, okay. And then I said, well, you know, maybe I could start to plot things. And then I started plotting, you know, a lot of two dimensional stuff. And I started plotting a bunch of three dimensional stuff. And what I didn't realize until I came through with this breakthrough is that you can actually plot everything in and this is key. I mean, if you take uh, Rene Descartes came up with the Cartesian coordinate systems that you, you're taught in, in high school where you've got, you know, a 2D uh, plotting system and you've got four sectors and three of them are negative. And they came up with the 3D plotting system where you've got these, these uh, octants or I guess is what they call it, or quadrants. There's not quadrants, you have eight of them. There's eight regions and seven of them entertain negative numbers. And the, the breakthrough mentally was that well, in business, there's no absolute negative number. If you have more cost than you've got revenue, you're comparing one non-negative number to another non-negative number. And so the, the insight was to jam everything together and have everything positive going from zero. Mm. And so that what drove me to that was, um, why do things fail? I mean, why does the economy have to be sputtering when it could be booming? you know, at all times. Why do people overvalue stocks? You know, we, we get these big run-ups in the stock market and we get these these crashes. Why did the 2008 stock market crash happen? Well, I mean, it was all around housing. Well, why did that happen? Well, if you, you read the big short, see the movie, I did both. 
you'll find that they they started to package these mortgages together. Shit wrapped in shit, sold to people. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and and well, now you, you have two or three problems there. One is that people who were being granted loans should never have had them. And two, they weren't being fully you know, told everything that was going to happen there. And then three, they were packaging these, to back to your point, they're packaging these crappy products together and, and rating them more highly than they should have been. Well, had a fair broker come in and rated them properly, and the the loans that were made that shouldn't have been made, this this run-up, artificial run-up, wouldn't have happened. And so one of the things we think I think will happen going forward is that the the, the stock market run-ups and collapses. The, the 10-year cycles that you're talking about? Yeah, the 10-year cycles. I think they're going to do two things. One is the amplitudes are going to dampen over time. I predict 10 to 20 to 30 years out, the amplitude will go down by half, a third to half, and the frequency will go down. Um, this, this is probably above and beyond for the listeners here, but I'm big into macroeconomics and the monetary policy and like fiat currency and the quantitative easing and printing of money kind of changes the paradigm oh, shift. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, we'll leave that for a different conversation, but like- Yeah, that was, like, well, I, I, yeah, I know a little bit about that. I, I just griped, you know, I mean, uh, for those of you who haven't followed it much as Ryan has, when we hit this 2020 COVID incident, the Fed kind of silently, and they actually took it off their website. So if you look at the St. Louis Fed, which is known as, for whatever reason, as the Fred, well, they're controllers of the what's known as the M1 money supply. And what they did is they, that, that M1 money supply had been coasting along, growing by you know a few percentage points every year until the beginning of 2020. And then in two quarters, Ryan, you can tell them probably what happened. Do you remember what happened? It was like, what is it, $5 trillion over the last... Yeah, mm -hmm. it, it went up by four hundred percent in two quarters. I know it's well, and it just changes the yeah, it changes the dynamic. So oh yeah, we we can park that over there because like that that's like <laughs> that, like I love this I love this stuff so much. But as far like I want to go back to when you're talking about the yeah. business cycle. So if we were to sure. assume that we were in the paradigm that you know logic resides in, which sure again, well that's maybe that's tough. A, that's sometimes. a bit of reach sometimes, but yeah, I know I know, and more so every <laughs> single day, Doug. And but like what I think is fascinating is yeah. Is pulling the thread on like these business cycles. It's these booms and busts because you have credit availability and money available, and then right. people get extended. And then I think part of the problem is they're making bet. They get overconfident and they're not making good bets. Is really what yes, ends up happening. So, and if cash flow is the name of the game for oxygen to keep things going, you've got what I'm hearing is that there's a higher probability of having that prediction of where the ball is going to go while cash flowing and not just guessing, therefore yes, decreasing right. the failure rate and increasing the success rate, increasing the cash flow right. and making that booms and busts less volatile, maybe less dramatic. And, and I think it'd be fascinating as we get into like the world of AI of how AI can help us make some of these predictions and when some of these multidimensional decisions. You know, the other thing when we talk about the ball analogy, which is kind of cool about that, is that you're seeing the the existing momentum. So from the distant past to near past to the present, you're supposing that momentum is going to carry forward. It, it'll probably carry forward mm -hmm. pretty reasonably well for a short period of time. But to use the physical analogy again, well, what happens if there's a gust of wind? Or a puddle. Or a puddle. Or another player. You know, what happens What happens then? And, and so I haven't studied that in near the depth that I hope to. And I hope some people 
will take up the mantle of this and start to run with it to model that so that we have you know fewer massive failures of the economy as we've had in the past because most of these failures were preventable i mean you know 911 that's that's going to be a you can't stop a 911 from the you know affecting the, the financial markets or world war 2 or world war 1 but you can you can prevent somebody from overreacting the next time there's a covid outbreak or something like that don't take the money supply up by 400%. Maybe take it up by 50%, you know? Don't leave people on on uh, what amounts to, you know, extended unemployment for two and three years when you could basically get them back into the workforce after a year, year and a half. Cut that outflow down and get people working more quickly. And, and there just wasn't any thought given to that. It just, you know, we just, we have a it's problem. Data. We want to fix it. Let's fi fix it. And so. It's data. It's data. It's the wrong answer. Um, for the listeners uh, tuning in, I know I want to give them a place where they can find the book, your website, and all that stuff. But I, I, before that, Doug, like if you're if you're running a private health business and you're trying to think about value creation and also you know they're they're trying to predict where the ball is going, they've got their ball is the company, and mm -hmm. like what what are some ways that that are actionable that people can think about things differently or start to apply some of these thoughts while they're running a company? In private health, you said. Pri privately held companies. So like, well, you know, like, held companies. Yeah, yeah, like well, you know, business owners, CEOs that are listening and going, okay, I'm trying to create value and I, I'm, 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 you know, grasping some of these concepts, but how should they start thinking or acting differently based on what we're talking about? Well, they should think of it this way is that, you know, if you're standing as I am here in, in just a little bit inland in California and, and you want to get to a port you could kind of keep walking towards the ocean. And when you see seagulls, you say, oh, I'm getting close to the ocean. I, I, I'm probably getting close to the ports. But, you know, ports are certain little enclaves of dirt that ha that are formed in the, in the landscape. And just getting to the coastline isn't enough. You want to get to the port. Well, imagine if you had this thing called a map. You speak my language. Some of you have heard of these things called maps. You know, I actually just what interviewed the founder, of, uh, the founder of MapQuest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> This is when it, when you take all this stuff down. I mean, I, I, I explain in the book. If if you wanted to take the book down to two words, those two words are dot plots. Where you're sitting right now, I could plot it as a dot on a map. Same thing with me. And basically, where all these products are sitting out in a in a in a in a market can also be plotted the same way. And people aggregate these dots. You know, these purchases for products in ways in which you can characterize it and then use it to your own benefit. So rather than going storming off and building a, 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 a supersonic business jet that'll fail or a micro jet that'll fail or a, a new sports car that'll fail, why don't you go out and, you know, these are th those two aircraft stories I told you, those are billion dollar plus losses. It, right. Excuse me, DeLorean's pro uh, DeLorean lost at least a hundred million, maybe a quarter billion in his venture. This only takes, I mean, w once you get into it, it's not, I wouldn't say it's trivial. I mean, there's, there's some learning involved here, but you know, for, a, you know, several tens of thousands to low hundreds of thousands, you can actually understand your market in a way in which your competitors don't. And if you, if you're selling something that's got any kind of a quantities or any kind of price points to it that, and you know, that merit that you, you should go off and do that now having said that this this works for the corner restaurant too um during covid we went down to our corner restaurant and 
they only could see people outside here in California. And so it was, you know, February, March, April in 2020, and it was cool outside, but we were sitting outside under some heaters on this small patio, and this place had a big inside seating area. And so the, all the people that used to come sit inside, well, now they're, they're stringing out the door because they have this small patio area. And I told my, uh, our, the manager of this place, I said, Kayla, you want to make some more money? She said, well, of course I do. I said, well, here's what you need to do. Well, what they had was they had three tables of six in this little area and three tables of four and only had a couple of tables of two. And I had noticed from when I came in and I eventually found this to be true nationwide that the average party size in the United States is one. And then the next most populous one is two. And there are over twice as many parties of two as there are parties of four. So I said, what you need to do, because you have a lot of parties of one or two, is to get rid of the party, the tables of six, get rid of two of them, get rid of your, you know, one of the two of the parties, yeah. the tables of four, <laughs> and put in tables of two. Well, they did that, and the revenue shot up 25% in two months. Holy shit. You know, so, and I think also, Doug, like the people that are listening in that are looking to acquire a company. Yeah. Like what product and service and what marketplace? I mean, if you're going to go big, make a big acquisition, a big purchase, making sure that they do this kind of analysis so that it's the right product pricing value <laughs> fit. Oh yeah, same thing. That it's easier to do it actually for an existing company. If you're like if you're picking an automotive company, you wanted to, for example, absorb. Say you're a, a big company, you wanted to absorb um, Volkswagen, for example. You could actually go out and do all the anal analytics of all the auto companies and figure out what Volkswagen is worth based on you know all the the financial attributes that that mm. that company has and all yeah, the other ones that have stuff. there. Yeah, yeah and yeah. all that data that now in in that arena, that data is easily retrievable from you know existing four hundred one ks and things like that. Well, and I, well, I, I should say about uh, like Doug, whatever their statements are. The eight, eight, yeah, eight. yeah. Well, I just think about how how much work people go through and due diligence when they're going to buy a company and like, yeah, this is, this is probably worth exploring. So where, oh, yeah. where can people, where can people find you, your book, the material? Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks. We appreciate that. I have my own personal website. It's uh, Doug Howarth. That's D O U G H O W A R T H.com. I also am heading up my own company, Hypernomics. So you can find us at hypernomics.com H Y P E R nomics.com and my book is entitled hypernomics using hidden dimensions to solve unseen problems it's coming out through wiley on the 29th of january nice, you can congrats. find it on wiley's site or you can also find it on amazon or barnes and noble so if you just type in doug howarth or hypernomics at either of those sites the book will come up and it's available for pre-sale now Awesome. And I, I believe by the time this goes out, we will, it'll be right around that time. So thank Excellent. you so much for coming on the show. This was an absolute blast. Well, I had a lot of fun too, Ryan. And I, you've got some really, really nice uh, guests on your show. And I feel honored and privileged to be part of it. So thank you so much for having I me. I had a lot of fun with it. Too. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening into that conversation. I hope you found the time valuable. If you enjoyed the conversation, please leave the show a review on your podcast player. We're constantly trying to up those reviews. It helps a lot with the visibility. And if you didn't catch the commercial in the middle of that episode, there's two different ways that we can help you. One is if you want that kind of clarity, we have a coaching program that is based on the five intentional growth principles and uses the material to help you get that kind of clarity on your target equity valuation and income that you need on the way towards that valuation. What you want from the business long term and why, and then how to get aligned with your leadership and your partners so that way everybody's working in the right direction to get you what you want. And the second way is if you want to jump right into the data and you want to actually build out your financial roadmap with your three statements and tie your financials and your operational data to that target equity valuation, my team offers a complimentary financial assessment. Either way, all you have to do is go use the link in the show notes below, schedule a discovery call with me. We can walk through your situation, figure out if there's a fit or not. And if not, I can point you in the right direction. Thanks everybody for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you next week.